Hey, this is Grant Helgeson with Avalanche Canada, and you're listening to the Avalanche Hour podcast. On my second turn, I felt the whole thing, the classic collapse and whoomph. Now the whole slope's moving. I can see rock right away as well. I'm now hanging onto a crumb hole. It's this little tiny tree on like a 50 plus degree slope, and I'm sitting on rocks. Welcome back to the Avalanche Hour podcast. I'm your guest host this week, Dom Baker. The Avalanche Hour is proudly presented by MND Safety, a global leader in avalanche hazard management, and our good friends at Ten Barrel Brewing, Drink Beer Outside, with additional support by Interwest Insurance. It's time for another Snow Saw giveaway. Primo Snow and Avalanche produces the El Professional Snow Saw. To win this saw, all you need to do is follow at the Avalanche Hour on Instagram and tag the podcast in a post. Here's the second half of my conversation with Grant Helgeson of Avalanche Canada. Enjoy. So you kind of touched a little bit on some of the differences between public forecasting in Canada versus in the States. It sounds like you had a lot of field time and maybe one area assigned to you in Utah, whereas here I I noticed like the same name on four or five different forecast areas in the morning when I'm looking through uh, the public avalanche bulletins. Do you mind elaborating a little bit on some of the other differences that you've seen down there? So most avalanche centers in the States are their official title would be something like the Forest Service I guess technically it'd be like the United States Forest Service, Utah Avalanche Center. And so each one of the forecasters are actually employees of the forest. And that has pros and cons. Um, one of the things that's great is that once they start getting into like a six month a year job, the, the, the federal government and the forest will take care of those folks. So they have um, pretty good retirement. They have great insurance packages. Um, so you kind of, you can kind of, you have the backing of the federal government, which is is very good in that in that way. Um, but along with that, like if you've you know if you've ever filled out like an IRS tax form, um, anything you're doing with the federal government has a lot of caveats and it has a lot of like you know they they don't they want a straight line through everything like no curves there is no gray area with with the federal government really. So I remember Bruce Temper saying to me that you know he would always have to show um, that he took an hour lunch in his field day. There was just no other way around it. And it's like, if you've ever been out in a, a winter storm and decide you're just going to sit down and do nothing for an hour, well, you know, that doesn't work. Um, you get cold and you're putting yourself at risk and like, you just can't do that. But the forest says you got to take like an hour lunch. That's a rule. That's um, definitely not with an outdoor job in mind. Hey, that's, that's for the thousands totally. of other federal employees that have much more traditional roles, I guess. Totally. And you know, also like the forest service obviously can't hold a bake sale to, to raise a little bit of extra money for some type of new initiative. So the forest basically takes care of the forecasters and then they have things like their friends of the avalanche center groups. And that's really what helps the forecasters and the forecasting teams to do different things. Like, you know, maybe the forest says that you can't do like a, an evening outreach program at eight o'clock PM because thou shall not work after, after 6 PM or something, or you'll need to get paid double time or something. But maybe the friends of the Utah avalanche center can kick down like a few extra bucks for you to go out there and have a great talk at the time people can actually attend it. And so there's actually these really neat um, symbiotic relationships where the friends can help the, for- the forest to do all these interesting and new projects. And I think that's where you actually see a lot of things like um, initiative development and a lot of neat things come out of the friends groups. And for the most part, those are volunteers. There's people who are passionate about um, backcountry safety who make those things happen. And, and quite honestly, the I, the American model would not work, in my opinion, without the without the friends groups. They're they're very very important. Um, but typically down in the states too, like it's one or one or two or a team of forecasters go out and forecast for a pretty small geographic region. They're in the field with a lot of frequency. They have the pulse of the place. Um, so while I might be guessing, looking at a remote weather station a thousand kilometers away, like they were there yesterday and they know exactly what it is. Um, and so I think in a lot of ways, it's kind of a more romantic job in the States. It's, you know, more like a, like a cowboy paperback novel. Like you're out there in the train <laughs> doing it, like you're ski cutting things, you're, you're tapping on tests or you're, you're doing your snowpack evaluations. Like it's very cool. And I, I, I'm so glad I did that. And honestly, without that, I probably wouldn't still be doing it because that's that like really idyllic version of this job. Sounds like that lit the fire for you. 
A bit Definitely. more of a ski patrol type vibe where you're in it every day. Yeah, totally. And I mean, it kind of blows my mind now that I did so much solo work down there too. Solo field so time included. Solo work. Oh yeah. In very, in very remote locations. Like I would be out on a sled by myself and, um, you know, I had, I had good mentors and like, but I definitely got surprised at times, like big time. I mean, <laughs> like humbled. You'll never be so scared as you are by yourself when you're stomping on something that you think is not going to do anything. I mean, you like, trigger a size 2.5. Oh yeah. Like <laughs> Sounds like we got to talk about and have an incident story yeah. here. <laughs> yeah. You don't, you don't, you don't make it into this uh, profession without incidents. Like it, that's a mileage thing. That's and actually sure. I'll, I'll We'll circle back around to it, but I, the Canadian model is is very very different. So the Canadian model, um, essentially, there's four forecasters on any given day. We're covering, um, you know, thirteen plus very large geographic regions. So we're covering all the western. We're covering all the mountainous terrain in Western Canada. And the exception of the remote. national parks, I guess, basically. So you're doing thank you yes. everything else essentially. And Vancouver Island kind of yep. randomly. Yep. Yep. And yeah, that, that place is, is so cool too. The island I was able to visit last year and work with some of the, the uh, island forecasters. And man, that place is cool. I, it's comical right now. They're getting like a hundred millimeters of rain for 12 hour period. I see at the oh, moment. Um, yeah, that place is wild. Maybe I'll retire and go to the island someday. I don't know. That place is cool. It's so rugged because um, you can be in the Alpine, in the snow in the morning, and then go surfing in the afternoon. Like it's unreal. That's where I grew up is on yeah, Vancouver Island. Totally. And it is just such a such a neat place. You got massive big cedar trees and all kinds of creatures and cougars all over the place. Yeah. And you could be, yeah, in the snow and on the ocean and in the same day. Yeah, it's super alluring. I was really taken. Conlon and I went out there last year and we're skiing around with, and, and sledding with folks like Ryan Shelley. He's one of the forecasters out there. And I was just like, this place is rad. He's like, yeah, I'm going to go fishing with my son down there this afternoon. I'm like, whoa, we're like fully in the Alpine right now on sleds. And that's really cool. Put the crab traps um, out in the morning yeah, before you go up sledding. Yeah, fully. <laughs> so cool. Um, so yeah, aside from Vancouver Island and the national parks to have their own safety teams um, and casters, take care of all the public forecasting for basically all the rest of the, of the regions, which are vast. And so in many ways, you have to come into this thing with all that field time and you have to be ready to kind of be like a bit of a data jockey. And one thing I've learned from some of my, the projects I've been working on in the last couple of years is, is actually like forecasters are essentially data scientists and there was an old study that before my time there, but that was looking at um, how many data points, how many individual data points a forecaster would look at in a day. And it's an, it's in excess of 10,000. So when they're you're looking like temperature, new snow, yeah. RH, wind, all that stuff from multiple different sites. And yeah. Wow. Profiles. That's a lot. Yeah. When you put it like that, it, it, uh, it really puts it into perspective. And it's also why you feel so drained at the end of the day, even though you've just been at the computer all day, it's like, whoa. You just spent a lot of uh, cognitive load. It was what the, da the data scientists would call it. So you're taking all that and trying to sift it out a cohesive message. Well, you're, you're taking all that and trying to do your now cast. So while the folks in the States are out there like, you know, ski cutting and drinking tea and, and doing tests and having great skiing and talking about which skin has more glide, like we're looking at graphs and looking at profiles and really distilling this very complex and disparate data source um, down. You know, it'd be one thing if every square kilometer you had the same piece of data. So you could be like, oh, here's my age. Here's the amount of snow I've had in the last 24 hours. Here's the temperature. Here's how much wind the place has experienced. Like, well, in that case, a computer would actually do it for us. But that's what we're doing. And then we're taking all that. So we have our now cast, what's going to happen. Then we work with the folks at Environment Canada who write these amazing products, like what we call the Avalanche Canada Mountain Weather Forecast. Um, that's produced by the meteorologists um, in both Edmonton and Vancouver to help us get what's going to happen in the future. And then we start matching nowcast and forecast weather, nowcast snowpack avalanche forecast weather into what we think is going to happen. And so we produce all of our forecasts by about 4 p.m. And those forecasts are now valid for tomorrow. But here's the catch. So let's like Friday, I was working today 
I'm essentially using all of yesterday's snowpack snow information. So all my information is already a day old because today's information isn't going to come out until my forecast is already out. Totally. So I'm using yesterday yesterday's information to forecast what's going to happen tomorrow. Is there, I was, that's definitely a question that's always been in my mind. Is there a reason for putting the forecast out at four o'clock that sort of um, goes beyond just like the, your working hours or like, would it make sense to have that, that last little bit of InfoX submission, you know, at five, five thirty, and then uh, get your forecast out a little bit later? Obviously it's a long work day for the forecasters, but I've always been curious about the timing of that. Cause just like you say, you end up working out 48 hour old information by the time you wake up the next morning and look at the bulletin. Yeah, and I guess in a perfect world, you'd probably just work a night shift, actually. Like you'd probably start it. I mean, you could make you could make a perfect world. There's no way I want to work nights. But and that that's part of the thing. But I guess, you know, purely if you wanted to, to really do it, maybe you would start at 7 p.m. and work all the way till 7 a.m. Or even uh, an afternoon forecast, right? Like you spend the day this maybe you go go out for a ski in the morning and then you start working at noon or something like that. And then you've kind of got your eight hour working period. You're done at eight o'clock, which is a lot more reasonable for people's lives. Cause I've worked my share of nights and they're not ideal, you know, especially when you're like sitting at a computer, looking at data points, like in the middle of the night, like there's bound to be some brain fog involved in the forecast. <laughs> Yeah, um, and then totally. you'd have like a up-to-date uh, avalanche occurrences and weather from operators, but you'd also kind of be, you know, you'd be, uh, there's so much intangible stuff that you can gather from even like webcams and people's um, information that's available, like daylight hour dependent, you know? Yeah. Part of the problem is though, that like your ski would be in a Revelstoke snowpack. So you'd basically be like somewhere along the Trans-Canada Highway. So unless you were forecasting for the North or South Columbia, it's like you're still as out of touch as you were. Sure. Um, then there's like the brain fog side of it and working nights. But I think we've actually come up with a pretty interesting solution now. And then we actually have a person that starts at six o'clock in the morning now. And we built out a new piece of forecasting software um, called Avid. And I've been a, a part of that. That's really been driven by Carl Clausen, who's one of the godfathers of this of this whole thing. And then I've been working with him with a number of other teams, or people on the team, I should say, um, to project manage this new piece of forecasting software. And so now we've been using this for the past, this is our second season with it. When we produce a forecast in the afternoon, we actually put what we call review notes in that forecast, that then the person that starts at six o'clock in the morning the next day will come and take a look at. And so if I was to pull it open right now, I might see like the forecast for the South Columbia is probably going to say something to the effect of, hey, I'm expecting um, 15 to 25 centimeters of snow overnight. If there's less than that in the morning, please bump down my forecast to a lower danger rating, change my headline, change the problem, reduce the sensitivity. If there's more than that, please do this. So you actually have the hypothesis that the forecast is written on, and then you have outcomes about what you should do if it's not there. That's very cool. That's a good solution to that problem. You do get that time-sensitive information. Yeah, it, it, it's actually working pretty well for us. Um, it, so it's that's new really in the well. last actually, year? Uh, this is the second year of it, yeah. And I was working the early shift this morning, and I'm actually really coming to enjoy that. So, And truthfully, like the last year I was doing it from the office, but this morning I got up at 5.30, I came out, I put the coffee on, I stretched for a little bit in the dark, and I walked outside for about 10 minutes and then I, I, I launched into it and it's like, um, I just watched the queen's gambit. It's like the speed chess or something. It's like, okay, here are the avalanche problems to solve because we want to try We're trying to get them all out by seven o'clock. So you have an hour to, to do 13 bulletins or to update 13 bulletins, I guess. Eh? Yeah. But we're, we're really being, we're, we're choosy too, because we're still, we're still forecasters and we're still forecasting. And so it's, it's like, it's really for the places where you're, you're thinking about a, a deterministic input overnight. So we've been really careful not to just let everyone sit on the fence and be like, well, maybe you should do this or maybe you should do this. It's like, no, you still got to write a forecast. Um, but then we have the places so we can actually tear out. We have like tier one, two or three review notes. And so we prioritize them that way. And so, you know, on a busy day, like this morning, I think I had, I had seven of them to go through. They're written, like, they're so well-written. Like, we have, we have this just amazing team. Like, you know, Kate Devine, Mike Collin, they have these great review notes for me. And as well as, like, I'm kind of in it, 
And I've been doing this for so long. Like I'm in it. I see the problem and I just go and like scan through information. So looking kind of like early morning Infoex submissions where people are out with forecast, looking at, um, you know, like uh, snow pillows and obviously the Ministry of Transportation weather sites and a, a few min reports that may come in overnight. It's like, okay, that forecast stands. It's good. Or, okay, you know what? We didn't get that much snow. I'm bringing that one down. Or this one, actually, you know, you thought there might be you, the upper end of your of your uh, forecast is there's gonna be 30 centimeters. Well, on the coast, there's 40 this morning. So, like, I'm actually gonna bring it down to high, high, considerable, and, and it adds some stronger messaging to it. But I'm not rewriting the forecast. I'm just updating it, and cool. it's it's fun. It's really fun. It, it, I think for the wrong person, it's, I mean, it's. It's a it's the it's the good stress. It's the kind of stress that makes it all come together. But you got to make decisions fast. Public writing at at six o'clock in the morning is always its own high stakes. Adventure. Public writing early in the morning. <laughs> yeah, very cool. Yeah, so, well, Grant, thanks for uh, taking a minute there to walk us through some of the differences between, you know, the public model in Canada and a more regional model in in the states. It's always struck me that you know our mountains uh, run continuously across the border and the weather patterns are indiscriminate of the border as well uh, and yet we have quite different ways of of tackling that as well so uh, that was interesting and i learned a lot there um you know you mentioned snowmobiling quite a bit and it's cool that you're a sledder in in a very skier traditional role and um it it seems like the sledders have really been brought into the fold a lot in the last decade or so uh with public avalanche forecasting i was just wondering if you could talk to us a little bit about that um and how uh that buy-in has kind of been earned so to speak yeah that's that's a great question actually um a couple things have happened there one it's no secret to to anyone that the machines are incredible now and like, I'm not that big a person. I'm like five, 10, 155 pounds. And I've owned many sleds starting in the early 2000s. And like, it used to be really hard for me to get like, you know, an old Polaris RMK, like a, I had like a 2002 RMK. And it was like, oh my God, I was like riding like a cannon or something. Like I would have to be so perched on the edge to make that thing carve. And I could never really do it fluidly. And it was always just like, it was like, it was like steer wrestling. It was always so hard. Um, these days though like you know I primarily end up riding skidoo which is good as a wannabe canadian that i that i do that but the, the machines are incredible and like you really you ride a sled with your hips now like once you understand how to throttle and how to dump your hips into it like it's i i am so loose like i was sledding all day yesterday and i'm not sore one bit and that's not because I'm an amazing sledder. It's just because I've learned how to make that thing work. And the machines have gotten so good. As machines have gotten so good, it's become pretty easy, actually, to get into avalanche train, like almost instantaneously. The thing goes 100 kilometers an hour, and then it climbs like, I mean, it, it's so easy. You, it's, I would argue that like any athletic person could actually go figure out snowmobiling in 10, 10 good days. Wow, like that's pretty impressive. Now, compared to skiing or snowboarding, where the barrier to entry is quite a bit higher uh, for travel into significant terrain. Well, this takes so much time, you know. And I'm like, oh man, I love this. It's um, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go on a quick rant here, real quick. Um, Chris McNamara is, was this uh, Yosemite climber and later became a base jumper, and he was like buddies with with McConkie and all those folks, and he did this great. A talk you can find it on the on the internet somewhere maybe even a ted talk or, or something along those lines and he's talking about the differences between um what he's talking about was base jumping versus things like surfing and climbing and so you know he's saying like surfing like you know you get you sit on the beach and you watch these waves break and you're like okay i'm gonna take this on and you paddle out and you might just get smacked down like you're instantly humbled like you instantly know how much you've got against this wave set and so you're like drowning and fighting for air and you're getting your face pounded into the the sand of the reef and you come out and you're really humbled after you know two minutes you're like oh my god i'm not that good yet like i can't go out there and surf these conditions okay climbing same thing like you start up something you're like i think i'm you know classic thing like the rockies it's like oh why don't you go try this five nine alpine route that was put up in 1950 yeah like, well, i can climb five nine <laughs> at the crag <laughs> for one yeah and then you realize that like 
Alpine five nine. That was as hard as it's got, as hard as it got at that time. So all these classic climbs are done in their five nine because the hardest thing you can think of. But you don't realize that it's like edgy five eleven climbing, and you get out there and you get scared, and then pretty soon it's getting dark, and you're like, I gotta bail on this thing, and you start getting really creative with gear placement, and then you leave all your gear on the wall. And you get cold and you get super humbled and like, okay, I guess I'm not there yet. But base jumping is easy. You just walk to the edge and have the gear and step off. And I think that backcountry skiing, sledding are actually the same thing. You don't have to run. There's, there really isn't that much trial by fire. Like so long as you can walk up something, which you can probably do given enough time, or you can get to the top of it. A sled, like I was just describing, it's not that hard to get into the thick of it. So you don't get the feedback like you do in the other sports. And I see this a lot and I see it myself too. You get the wrong kind of feedback sometimes. Like it's a sporty day, you know, it's considerable that classic time when all the vast majority of avalanche accidents happen. You go out there, you have a safe day and you're like, well, I was able to ski that line was considerable. So I'm so good. But you might've just been, you know, a meter off the thin spot of that, or you might've just been like an hour before that thing went naturally. So you don't get feedback like you do in those other places. And I think quite honestly, what was happening was like, people were just starting to get wrecked out there because more and more people were in avalanche train. It was so easy to get there on, on snowmobiles. And a lot of the snowmobile industry started to really dig into that and realize what was happening out there. There was no secret. Like when there's avalanche accidents, they're in the news. Yeah. Um, there've been some really big avalanche incidents, like the Boulder mountain incident, you know, the, the big iron shootout. Like I remember being in Utah and hearing that thing. Like yeah, that potential for a few hundred people buried in that situation. And miraculously, it was just an absolute fraction of that, but the potential yeah. was there. Yeah. I mean, just like grace of God or the universe or whatever, but like a lot of people got super lucky, but I think that the snowmobile community has really embraced that now. And I have really seen it go from a place where a lot of people I would go out and talk to didn't read the avalanche forecast. And I would kind of be like the traveling, I almost like a traveling preacher out there, like every parking lot I go to like, Hey, have you read the avalanche forecast? Like, da 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 da. like, here's what we do. And more often than not now, people are like, oh, yeah, I read the forecast. Like, here's what we're doing. Like, the community has, are the ones who have changed it, actually. Because no one no one gets up in the morning thinking they're going to die in an avalanche. Of course. No one wants that as their outcome. And, and folks are, have gotten more and more savvy and have just started to take that responsibility on. And now we get, you know, I love seeing these great men reports in the snowmobile community. Um the snowmobile community has really braced myself and Avalanche Canada and have been so helpful. And I think it, it's, it can be a bit intimidating at, at first. And I think that's just kind of part of the deal with motorsports to be, to be totally honest, but it's, it's an interesting community filled with really good people out there who don't want to die in avalanches. And a lot of those leaders have really taken the bull by the horns and, and, and the snowmobile clubs that way too. Um, you know, they're often like Vancouver islands are really good example of that. The snowmobile clubs have pretty interesting relationships with, because of the land management with how they can get into the backcountry because they're traveling on private roads. And so okay. they're very vested. I, I was actually quite surprised by it. We went out with, um, I think it was the Mid-Island Snowblazers, and like you pull up to a gate in the morning, and then the gate opens, and they're, they're allowed through to go onto like one of the timber companies' private roads because in that part of the world, the timber companies on the land, it's not like here in the rest of BC where it's all lease land. And, you know, Mike and I were, we thought we were going to be on our own. And one of the guys from the club comes back. He's like, are you, are you guys ready to go yet? And we were actually planning to do a little bit of skiing that day too. So we're like in our full, like our Carex kits and whatnot. We have, and we have our sledders too. Like, oh, like, are, are you, are we going to be traveling with you? Oh yeah, that's how we travel. We always travel as a group because they're trying to, they're trying to protect um, the group members. They're trying to protect the relationship with the company so they can keep doing it. And I think that's part of it too. Like the manufacturers don't want to see their clientele dying in avalanches. People don't want to be dying in avalanches. And so as a result, they've really started to embrace it. And we've got, you know, we've got some great teachers and educators out there in the snowmobile community. Um, so I think it's it's come a long ways. And you see that in the snowmobile related deaths. Like there's this classic graph that shows um, a user group and basically how new they are. And what always happens is there's a new user group and then they, um, 
the the number of, of fatalities and incidents spikes way up and then it falls off. And like the first people to do that were mountaineers. And so early on, you know, it comes along and the mountaineers all start getting an avalanches and then they kind of figure it out and it comes down. And then skiers and then snow mobiler, or then the skiers and then snowshoers. That's a, snowshoers are actually a different thing, but snowmobilers. And actually, you're starting to see now that there's a lot less. Like they're not they're not the prime target anymore because they're figuring it out too. They've been out there doing it enough. I mean, that's really a huge accomplishment for the industry at a whole as a whole because there were some pretty epic uh, events that occurred over the last decade. So, do you think that um, that eye-opening kind of news-catching type event is what it took to gain some awareness that, like, look, guys, this is actually a problem? And then from there, then the hard work gets put in of taking courses and and obviously, there's been some fantastic. Uh, grants and funding for for avalanche canada through various snowmobiling manufacturers so it seems like it's from all industry levels that the support is is there for you guys oh yeah and then like things like the um sar nif which is the search and rescue new initiative uh fund, fund i believe it is yeah yeah and so the, like the National Search and Rescue Secretary has, has given us money at different times to, to put together a snowmobile curriculum so that we, like, we all of our curriculums for AST programs are obviously available with gears and sledders. Um, so it, it really is a, a every this happen. You know, I think it, I think this is going to be a really interesting winter and not for sledders, but for everyone, because it, it feels like just looking around, you can't buy a sled right now. There's a lot of people getting out and about. I was uh, sledding for work the other day up to a standard profile site. And like, quite frankly, in an area where you wouldn't go sled skiing, there's not like just epic tree skiing to be done that you can lap with the sled. Like we're in a pretty obscure spot and there's eight or 10, 10 trucks in the parking lot. And yeah, there's a lot of young people from, you know, Australia and the UK. I'm like, these guys have sleds now too. That's a real changing demographic um, for BC. So I think it's going to be interesting this winter for sure. Like such a huge increase in um, backcountry traffic. It'll be really, uh, yeah, well, we'll see what we see. I guess we're, we're off to a bit of a challenging start with a snowpack. So hopefully everybody can kind of pay attention and uh, keep their ambitions sort of in check. Hopefully. And, you know, I think folks listening to this podcast are obviously folks that are already like, this is, uh, this is the choir, like people that are listening to this, they're tuned in. They want to get better at this. They want to be good at it, which is so cool. And we're those folks ourselves, but how do we talk to the, the people who don't know, you know, how do we talk to the folks who just got their first pair of snowshoes? That's a great like, point actually. Cause there's like that whole unaware community where, you know, they've got their snowshoes. They, they don't think they're doing anything risky at all. They've heard about this like backcountry skiing thing. It seems a bit gnarly. Like they just want to keep it really cool and go for a nice hike, maybe even following an established mm-hmm. hiking trail. And they may be unaware yeah, of this whole yeah. concept of like overhead hazard. And we've had a few accidents in the, in the Banff and Lake Louise area in the last few years, you know, tobogganers and snowshoers that have been uh, caught and buried in avalanches and they were totally not expecting for that event to occur in their day. So how do you reach out to people that aren't in the habit of checking Avalanche Canada website for the up-to-date forecast? They don't even know that's a thing. Yeah, boy, that's a tough one. And we have different folks who work on that. And Nancy Geismer is one of those folks that really works on outreach, which is is really important. Um, and then we also have, you know, like Sarah Taylor doing social media outreach. I think social media is big. I mean, I, I, I don't have any social media accounts anymore. Like I'm totally checked out. So I'm so glad that we have people starting to spread that message and looking at like buying Facebook ads for that kind of thing. So like we're down in the nitty gritty, like doing search engine optimization and buying terms and that kind of stuff to try and get that messaging out there. And like literally like buying Instagram ads and targeting them, that kind of thing. Um, we also, for when things get really interesting, we have what we call a spa, like a special public avalanche warning. And that's really designed to catch people who otherwise aren't in tune with our products. So we just had a spa that happened over the Christmas holiday. And we have really, really specific criteria for a spa. And that's when we kind of hit like, all the hotspots. We do it. We do a press release. So what what it is is when we start to look at a problem, we say this is not an av- an obvious avalanche problem. You know, it's when it's storming and avalanches are running, it's kind of obvious that you don't want to be there in the mountains because they're just they're very inhospitable. But you come at the end of a, a storm cycle and you start getting into a low probability, high consequence type time, and it starts to go blue and sunny, and you just bought a pair of snowshoes and like you just nailed it with saying like 
people traveling on established hiking trails or places they go to in the summer, that's when we start to like, like try and try and hit like the Batman signal or like the flashing red light about, Hey, you have to pay attention to this because of this. And that's the type um, of thing that makes it into the mainstream media. All of a sudden you're listening to CBC and you're hearing about the avalanche hazard. It seems like a lot of the time you guys target yeah. that over like busy holiday weekends and stuff. If all the conditions line up for that, is that part of the rationale? Yep, totally. So the, the timing of that is important. Um, you know, if it's happening in a period when we think a lot of people are going to be off like a family day weekend or something like that. Um, if it's a non-obvious avalanche problem, you know, but along with, so spas are, are one of those criteria. you know, the factors that are just have encouraged back, encouraged back into use like a long weekend. Um, we also try and feel like it's a time when we can actually offer clear advice to, as to what to do, which is not always the case. That can be really tricky as well. So spas are one of my favorite times to actually be in the office over a cup of coffee because there's some really interesting whiteboarding and discussion that goes on and people are passionate. And like, we always say at Avalanche Canada, like, you know, don't, uh, we don't fight the person, we fight the ideas, but like, we, we, we tear ideas apart. <laughs> it can be a bit of a boiler room. <laughs> like we're all really courteous and um, we're all very professional. And I, I truly love everyone I work with, but it's kind of like a family, like you love them, but then you're like, oh man, we're going to get into this right now, aren't we? And it's not about personalities, but it's about ideas. And so we, we really, not just over spas, but over forecasts, like we challenge each other all the time. That's part of the thing that like, I don't know, it's like a, it's like a game of Thrones thing. Like only steel can sharpen steel. That's part of your product you're putting out. You obviously really, you guys are passionate and you care about it. So it's, it's cool to hear that you guys go to that sort of that, those lengths. I can only imagine the, uh, the water cooler chat, so to speak. Yeah. And you know, it's got our names on it too, which I think is great. Like I would never, I would, I'd be a lot less stoked about this stuff if it didn't have my name on it. just puts the personal accountability on me to, to really know, to, to really do my, my best with it. We have, you know, coming back to how do we talk to the unawares, we have a whole unaware campaign going on right now where basically we're throwing stickers and like the, the manufacturers are all helping us with this, where it's um, like a QR reader. And those stickers have been going on everything from like backcountry packs and probes and shovels and snowshoes. So like, hey, are you new to the backcountry? Like scan here for what you need to do. Um, we have this whole new program called Avi Savvy, which is just targeted at, at brand new people. So, you know, trying to get them on board, trying to, uh, give them a little bit of the gospel to kind of know about, Hey, the mountain, it's the mountains in winter. As Marty Schaefer always says, like, it's a tough place to hang out. Here's what you can do to have a good time and get home safe. So we really are starting to try and, um, target people who are just buying all this new gear. They start getting on board with us, start checking our products out at avalanche.ca and start uh, start to become members of the community that can help us write more men reports and talk and and uh, take photos and just have a good time. Because, I mean, the other part of it is, too, that, like, winter is long in BC. Like, the days are short. Winter is long. So I think it's just really important for people to feel empowered to go out and enjoy the mountains of British Columbia because staying in the valley all year would suck. I can't imagine living anywhere here not being in the snow absolutely there's a lot of times you get these strong inversions and the the towns are just like shrouded in fog all winter long and you're up in the sun and the powder up high and yeah life and soaking up vitamin d and you know really uh picks the mood up compared to being stuck in town so yeah cheers to that i definitely think it's cool that you guys are actively targeting um uh, uh maybe a demographic that doesn't know that they need to be targeted and uh, it's all for the greater safety of, of people. So that's really cool. You know, backcountry skiing used to just be a sport for nerds. Like it was like, it's like riding a unicycle or something. And now it's suddenly really cool, which is great. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Well, you've been gracious with your time, Grant, and I appreciate this long conversation. I was wondering if you had any uh, incidents or uh, experiences that uh, hard, hard learning type of experiences that you might be willing to share with us. Let's see. Yeah. So I, I had, I was living in, in, in Park City, Utah, and spending a lot of time in the Cottonwoods. And um, I had taken, a, a, I think I had like a week off between when back my job at backcountry.com was done and when my first day with Utah Avalanche Center was starting. And I was like, oh yeah, got my dream job. Like, I'm going to be an avalanche forecaster. Like, I felt like I was at the top of my game. I was, I felt like I was skiing really well. It felt really strong. Um, 
And Jim Harris and I set out to uh, to ski this line on, it's actually in, in Big Cottonwood Canyon on top of this peak, Argenta Peak. And the name of the line is God's Lawnmower. And I had never really put weight into names of climbs or ski runs or anything like that until later that evening. Um, <laughs> so it's, it's this big... <laughs> I think it's it's got like five thousand feet of of vertical relief, and so it's kind of the, what it's a thing that you do. It's just a giant avalanche path, um, and so we start at the bottom of it, and we're working our way through it. And it's just Jim and I, Jim Harris and I, out for a day of skiing, and it's just, yeah, just this big, striking, beautiful avalanche path. And the, it's 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 quite broad and mellow for most of it but at the at the end it it steepens up quite dramatically like the start zone has got to be it's, it's steeper than 50 degrees and so we're, we're, we're cruising along we're digging holes we we're very in tune with the the avalanche forecast which at the time was was a moderate danger rating and it was it primarily was dealing with storm slabs but it was an, an aging storm slab problem so everything's kind of like you know, like starting to like creep into like, uh, this is almost go time. And in Utah, I think that there's a bit of a game there about getting on things early because the place gets skied hard. And so there's kind of an incentive to go and do things when they're ready to go. Um, especially if you want to do them first, which like we wanted to. So we think we think that we're doing a really good job. Like we're digging holes, we're getting no results in our compression tests. I remember it being a nice early day, like and like we were on it. We we were totally on it, fit young people, very in tune with the thing. We're walking up, we're putting a nice skin track in. And you're kind of you can be in the path and 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 really feeling the future. But then at the end you kind of have to wrap around and then you get on top of the of the peak and you come in and you're on you're now looking into the very start zone of the path. And it it's rock walled. Um, God, this is like 15 years ago, but it's, it's, it's at least rock on the right. I think it's very steep, maybe a bit cliffy on the left. And so like the first, let's call it 200 feet or something, um, are in excess of 50 degrees. And it's, it's kind of a hallway. There's a, there's one line into it and that's the start zone of this thing. And Jim gets we he and I were always like Rochambeauing for who's gonna go first. And um you know it's so different because then I remember like later learning that Bruce Trumper tries to never ski things first and I know why. It's much easier. It's, you know it'd be less bold if you don't if you don't ski it first. But anyway, so Jim Jim's like I wanted to ski it first. It, it just looks so tasty. Like it's you know ski pen is probably oh gosh, I don't know, like 75 centimeters, you know, over two feet. Like it's gonna be a blower. We think this thing is good to go. It's sunny. It's going to be rad. It's like now we're looking like a, uh, I think it might be a, a, just 5,000. Maybe it's only 3,000 feet, but it's a rad line. Jim skis into it. And then at the end, you can tuck in hard right and you can be sheltered uh, by ducking underneath a, a cliff. And so he's, you know, he skis it like, oh my God, that looked amazing. You make like two turns in it. And then I put, I jumped to the other side of it and made one turn. And on my second turn, I felt the whole thing, the classic collapse and woomph. And I, I was instantly rocked back onto my back. And so there was going to be no skiing out of this thing. And I just remember looking around and like, now the whole slope's moving. I can see rock right away as well. And I'm just kind of like, oh, like no time to think. And then I just look over and there's a little crumb hole from those little hardened alpine trees that I'm just kind of coming towards it. And I'm just able to grab it. And the whole thing probably went like size... 2.5 maybe even size three like big complete powder cloud like it, it didn't run full path it probably run ran to maybe like the i don't know top or middle of of the probably top of the run out and kind of bottom of the track kind of thing and it didn't once it was into the actual path like it didn't it didn't take the whole path of it either like it, it kind of was like the debris channel through it but like it scared the snot out of me and obviously like, i'm yelling for jim i'm now hanging on to a crumb hole it's this little tiny tree on like a 50 plus degree slope and i'm sitting on rocks and i've got one and one pole i realized quickly that jim's okay i'm rattled obviously and now i'm like what am i gonna do with this because this is pretty weird but what i look around and see that i didn't realize about about that particular feature and this is something that, that stuck with me in all my decision making um was at the very top of that in that start zone it's actually these these big 
pocketed features. So it almost looks like um, like holes in a rock. And so you've got like, you're looking at like a rock face. It's got all these big holes in it, almost like um, it's, it's very pocketed, if that makes sense. And so what that does is there's just all these big round bowls. It's almost like a five gallon bucket, maybe a little bit bigger. And it's just a facet factory up there. Oh, and that's crazy. why that, that's why I think, yeah. Cause it's just like, it's just storing like little vats of kegs, maybe kegs is a better, a better size thing. So like basically there's all these holes that you can put a keg into in the rock face. And that's just a facet factory. Cause it's just like rock, snow, rock, snow, rock, snow. And so it's, it's a faceted nightmare up there. And so there's just a little bit of a slab up there. And so while there wasn't really a persistent slab problem in, in many parts of the range that the forecast was even talking about, like, like right there for that, like 50 by 200 foot zone, that's a persistent slab problem that is totally anomalous. What, what else is going on? Right. So you're sitting there gripped and hanging onto a tree on yeah. facets, basically. Yeah. Yeah. And so I was able to like, I, I was able, I, I kicked my ski off and I down climbed out of it. Um, it was funny. I, my, my poles had been in someone else's car from the day before I had borrowed a pair of gyms, like brand new, uh, black diamond carbon ski poles. So at the time I was like, those are worth their weight in gold. And I just lost one of them in this huge avalanche. So I found my ski. I, and I had one pole. So I skied out with, with uh, two skis, one pole and it was obviously a very humbling experience and to this day i still ski with that one pole and i call it my humble pole <laughs> because every time i think i've like got this totally figured out i can look down and remind myself that like hmm, like where you know as, as rumsfeld said like what are what are the known unknowns and what are the unknown unknowns and we just don't know out there and I think that that's kind of what it comes back to things like terrain. Like when you're out there trying to ride checklist type features, you're dealing with a different beast. So it could have been low avalanche danger and that, that feature still could have gone because low avalanche danger doesn't mean no avalanche danger. And I think it really strikes. I don't, we could not have snow nerded in a better way to get on top of that thing and, and feel our way through it. It's just that we probably shouldn't have skied that line that day. That line shouldn't have been greenlit for us that day. You know, a couple of days later, it might have worked after that, after it settled out a little bit. But I think you just have to, it really helped me to start thinking about putting my desires in check. Because at that time, and I'm embarrassed to, to say it, honestly, but I think it's important to vocalize, is that like I felt that backcountry skiing, that it was worth dying for. And specifically ski mountaineering, like I wanted to do it so badly and it gave me so much joy that I was like, yeah, if I died doing this, at least I died doing something I love. And it wasn't until later, someone like Craig Gordon said like, man, that you've got it wrong. Like, this is so good that you just want to keep doing this. Like, why would you want to die backcountry skiing? I don't want to, that's a horrible death, A. And B, I want to be doing this until I'm old and gray. And that's when my mindset really started to switch on it. And so, I mean, I, I went, God, I skied a lot of big lines after that too. And like, I'm still, I'm, I, I still have, I still have desires. I still get on top of big things at times and still really enjoy them. But I think I have a, I have a better understanding of what I'm doing out there. And I think that's part of why I don't have any social media actually, because I want to make sure that the reason I'm out there doing those things is, is, is really just for me because they're, it's not to be shared. It, it's, it's, it's actually quite a selfish pursuit. It's really just out there for me to go out there and experience it. And while I derive a lot of joy from it, like how would my mom feel if I died on one of these lines? You know, how would people around me feel like I'm going to be dead. It's not going to matter. But I started to think about things a lot differently out there. And I started to realize that I was actually like, that I didn't know anything actually. So I was hired a forecasting job. I talked about it at the top of the hour that they really mentored me into this thing and gave me the tools to take on a, a different mindset with it and tone it all back down a little bit. And that that's probably my, my, my most humbling incident story just to realize that you don't have it totally figured out. And just because you were there yesterday or just because you were there last week or just because the avalanche forecast says this, like there's still risk in the mountains. 
And I, you know, to be quite honest, I apply that to things like driving too. I used to drive like through the night as a young person all the time, just like pull off all these missions. And it's like, I don't actually need to expose myself to that much risk at night. Like I'll, I'll take those things on. I'll take the big lines on when it's time, but I don't push them. And I'll take the drives on in, in, during the day, but I'm not going to do it at night, blittery eyed. And I think that's just kind of part of maturing is to start, start getting to that point. You got to get that and mileage. That's, that's really what it, you gotta get that mileage. And that's what I'm trying to express to my readers and my forecast too. It's just like, Hey, here's what we do know, but there's a lot, here's what I don't know. And so that's up to you to start making those decisions. That's uh, an interesting story, man. Like such a wild experience that you've had there. It sounds like uh, becoming more and more calculated with decision-making has been a, a real growth thing for you as, as it has been for a lot of us in this industry. And uh, yeah. there's a super interesting graph about people's experience, right? After courses, you know, you get more and more confident. Yeah. With them. You get it. You take a course, you get super confident. And then you kind of get a little scared because you have a bit of an accident. And then you're back down in the, in the doldrums a little bit with your confidence level. And then you kind of build it back up, build it back up and have another accident. Mm-hmm. And it is just so classic, but it's so true. And, uh, and you need to go through that cycle a little bit and hopefully come out unscathed to, to, have that uh that sense of moderation and to be able to restrain yourself when it looks super good so thanks for uh, sharing that story man because that's that i can only imagine how terrifying that would have been to to start that be involved with it and to self-arrest it all in all would have been like the longest few seconds of your life and so lucky and then i you know i had to go i i felt like it was my due diligence i had to go tell the the forecasting shop about it too so i remember like submitting my public information uh product like hey i started this really big avalanche <laughs> whoopsie doodle by the way did you Great just hire me to see you at work next week <laughs> yeah. yeah exactly Ooh, I swear. oh man they make good decisions most of the time but well yeah. i just a couple of final uh questions for you grant just some a little bit more lighthearted after that uh, that big story there um given that we have so many new people coming into the industry with uh you know keen recreational standpoint maybe a bit more time on their hands with maybe a little bit less work this time of the the year what do you think would be like the best way that somebody could put say 200 bucks or something like that into bettering themselves or giving themselves a better chance at uh um, having a really safe and successful winter. Yeah. And I, I, yeah, great question. I love this question. Um, if you haven't taken an AST one, obviously start there. That's about 200 bucks, maybe a little bit more or something like get that basic knowledge. Um, if you have taken an AST one or maybe it's been a few years, get you and your core group of riding buddies and go out there and do the companion rescue course. You know, I think as recreationists, like I, we, you and people like you and I get paid to go out and train and to be good with our transceivers and the shovel work and the probing, but it's really easy to kind of forget about how hard that is. And we know the statistics, like you just don't have much time. You know, I think now we're saying you've got like basically 10 minutes to get someone out underneath from the snow if they haven't already been um, succumbed to a traumatic injury. So the companion rescue course is sick and you'll feel really empowered and you'll get to see your buddies go to work. And that's just a great experience out there as well. Um, and there have been numerous, gosh, like that avalanche in the parks a couple of years ago, like I, that person was down like four or five meters. Oh my God. Yeah, of- absolutely. So far down. And they had, they were fresh like, graduates of a companion rescue course too. And they managed to put, yeah. and only two or three people were involved in that response too. Like it was a shocking depth for the number of resources they had available. Yeah. And statistically that person should have been dead, but that group had just done a companion rescue course. They were dialed. And I think that, that just, that showed the worth of something like that. Um, you know, that's really good. Great suggestion for something to do with your crew that you go skiing with or snowboarding or snowmobiling, because then you're all on the same wavelength and you, you understand that, um, you know, selfishly speaking, if you're under the snow, you know, your buddy's got your back too. And that's such a valuable totally. uh, thing for everybody to have that confidence with their group. What totally. do you think about the well, managing avalanche that- train course as another one day course? that's like, <laughs> you know, less than 200 yeah. bucks or whatever. I think it's killer. And I think that like to date, the most valuable course I've ever taken was my AST2, actually. I took it with Cyril Shakopoulos on the Alpine Club of Canada leadership course. And like, that's basically what that was. Like that's what I got the most out of it was the managing avalanche train. So you, you took the word right out of my mouth. Like, you know, and find someone with some some gray hair to teach that thing. Like find someone who's a who's been a guide for a while and be choosy with that person because 
if you can go spend a day with someone like that, that can really help walk you through that and tell some good stories. You're going to get a lot out of that. And like, you know, it, it's so cliche, but you know, the avalanche, the answer to the avalanche problem is terrain, terrain, terrain. And it's true. It's not just a bumper sticker. Like if you can manage terrain and pick terrain, I think that comes back to that incident I was describing earlier, like that was the wrong piece of terrain. You can choose the right piece of terrain. You can go out there and have a killer day and get home safely. And like, that's really what it comes down to. So I think that, yeah, the managing avalanche train course is, is sick. And I think I'm, I'm so I'm so inspired to see that that's being offered now because I think it's so cool to kind of have like one of those um, kind of refreshers almost like we refresh for CPR and first aid like because you have to, but we don't Absolutely. often refresh for, for avalanche education. So I think that's really cool. And the best bang for your buck for a day of guided ski touring at the end of the day, if you want to look at it that way. Heck yeah. You know, yeah. You're, it's you're less than 200 bucks. You get a ton of it. That's yeah. fantastic. So yeah. you heard it here, get some education and, uh, and you're never, it's never too late to get more education because there's so much to learn. Um, awesome. What's your favorite trail snack? Oh, Stroop waffles. Those things are so good. Like they're like a little, are they from Belgium? Like a little like candied waffle thing. I don't know, but it sounds good. Oh man, it's like it's like this, the best cookie. They have them everywhere in Europe, and I used to buy like they're like the Honey Stinger version of them. But you can you can buy the grocery store version. You get like ten of them for four bucks. And like I'm always drinking tea in the backcountry, so I'll like fill my I'll take a scoop of snow in my tea mug, pour my tea on top of that, and I put a stroop waffle on top of that, and just let it sit for like two minutes while I'm peeling skins or whatever. And you kind of get this like hot cookie to eat with tea. Oh my god, that's amazing. Hot cookies and tea at every skin up. That's fantastic. <laughs> you have a career in guiding ahead of you just for the customer service alone. Strip waffles for the win, for sure. There we go. Nice, man. Well, hey, I really appreciate you taking the time to have a chat with me, especially after working the early shift this morning and banging through seven public forecasts. So that's a big day and much appreciated. It was super fun to chat with you. Oh, for hosting and all the, the great questions and just thanks to all the listeners on a podcast like this. I think it's so cool and that we have this community that's just richly uh, devoted to getting better at this stuff and sharing the, the lore of all c- our culture. And uh, yeah, it's a beautiful thing. So thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. You are welcome, man. Anytime. Cheers, buddy. Cheers, bud. Well, that was a great conversation with Grant. Thanks, Grant, for joining me, and thank you for listening. If you've been enjoying the podcast, tell a friend. Please rate and review the podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Let's get Caleb some five-star reviews. He's been putting out a great podcast for years, and those five-star reviews really help him. You can find the podcast on Facebook and Instagram at The Avalanche Hour Podcast. Our artwork was created by Mike T. Thanks, Mike. Head over to MikeT.com, M-I-K-E-T-E-A.com, and check out some of Mike's work. Music for this episode was written and performed by Chris Kuklinski. Thanks, Chris, for your contribution to the podcast. This episode was produced by Wes Gregg. Well, until next time, stay tuned, stay safe, having fun out there.